All right, now that we can get control of things again here. <laughs> Glad you're all part of my family. Glad you're here this morning. Have a great time to fellowship together around the Word of God. I do want to put in a plug for the, the message this evening. Uh, you'll notice the title in the bulletin is that Methuselah really lived for 969 years. Uh, we're going to be looking at that, that passage in Genesis chapter 5 uh, this evening and, and considering all those patriarchs that lived uh, for over 900 years. I'll give you the short answer this morning. Yes, he did live for 969 years. But come on out tonight and we'll give you a little bit uh, more expanded answer to that. But we're glad you're here this morning. I encourage you to come back again tonight. Uh, on March 28th of this year, a uh, true American hero uh, died. Uh, Jeremiah Denton was a Navy pilot who was shot down and became a POW in Hanoi, Vietnam for almost eight years. Uh, after his release, he went on to be promoted to the rank of uh, Rear Admiral at the time of his retirement from the Navy and went on to become a, a senator uh, in the um, in the U.S. Senate from the state of Alabama. But uh, he was noted for what he did uh, during a recorded and, and broadcast interview uh, to which he was forced to submit while a POW. Uh, during the interview, he kept blinking his eyes. And some people wonder, what's going on? But they, they, they looked closely, and they found out he was blinking out Morris code. And he was blinking out the word torture, indicating that uh, our POWs indeed were being submitted to torture at the hands of their captors during the Vietnamese War. And then that could at least be addressed at that time. Uh, in an attempt to discourage and, and break Jeremiah Denton and a number of the other POWs, the, the North Vietnamese took them out of the general population in what was lovingly called the Hanoi Hilton. And they, they took these men and they put them into solitary confinement in windowless three-foot by nine-foot cells. And they kept Jeremiah Denton in, in that solitary confinement for four years. Four years. They wanted to isolate these men, get them off by themselves so that they, they, they couldn't be an influence on others and, and even a help to each other. Uh, to stand in resistance against what their captors were trying to, to get them to do. They wanted to get them to um, do say things they could use for propaganda purposes. But uh, uh, Jeremiah Denton wrote a book entitled When Hell Was in Session. And uh, in that book, he tells of how these prisoners, even when they're in, in, in solitary confinement, they found a way that they could, could tap out Morris code using their cups and things like that. And and send messages of encouragement to one another in that fashion. They also had some other ingenious ways in which they, they came up with, with ink that they made, and they would write little notes and somehow get those passed on uh, to, to one another to try to be an encouragement to each other. Great book, if you haven't ever read it, When Hell is in Session by Jeremiah Denton. But uh, they, they tried to break these guys by, by getting them off on their own. I can't help but think when I... I consider that, that Satan often tries to use this isolation strategy with people in general and with Christians in particular. If he can get people feeling like they're all alone, they don't have anybody, nobody cares what happens to them, 
he can then be successful in making us easy prey for the roaring lion that's seeking whom he may devour. And I'm concerned, very concerned about Christians trying to get along in this world without an active and significant involvement with other Christians. Sometimes it happens. You know, people drop out of church for one reason or another. Sometimes people get their feelings hurt and, and they, 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 they leave and, and they don't find another church body. They, they, they just kind of back off and get on their own. Sometimes people just get busy in life and all the pursuits in life and then they just kind of draw into themselves and to their own family, but they, they get isolated from the family of God. They, they, they divide themselves from the family of God. They wander away from the flock. But we mean too much to each other to allow Satan to cut us off and to isolate us from other members of the family of God. We need each other. I need you. You need each other. You need me. Uh, well, God designed us to live in, in a family, in a, in a biological family, and He also decided, designed for the church to be a spiritual family, for us to be a help and an encouragement to one another. And in the last words of 1 Peter, which we're wrapping up this morning, the last words, 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter sends final greetings that are recorded in verses 12 to 14. And these final words are concerned with meeting this need for involvement with, one, with other believers. And his words aren't so much an exhortation as they are really an example uh, to us of the, the kind of need that we have for each other and the, the fact that we need to get that need met. We find that uh, he says, beginning in verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 5, By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. As we read through these verses, we find a reference to the four ways in which we can be a help and an encouragement to one another in the grace of God. We can serve together. We can encourage each other. We can be examples to each other. We can also wonderfully enjoy the grace of God together as well. First of all, we can serve together in the grace of God. We can serve each other, and we can serve with each other. Uh, in fact, this whole letter that Paul's writing, or that Peter's writing, is written as a service to the Lord and to his readers. You know, why is he taking time to, to write this letter? Well, because he, he wants to be pleasing to God, and he also cares about these people to whom he's sending this letter. For, for some uh, folks, writing a letter is a very difficult thing to do. Some of you are, are good letter writers. You don't have any problems sitting down and dashing off four or five or six pages or whatever, but for other people, writing a, labor, a, a letter is a, is a real effort. In fact, I, I've got, in my whole life, I got one letter from my dad. 
Now, my dad loved me. We talked on the phone and, and so forth. But when, when he was in, in, he worked for IBM and was off in Tucson and getting schooled on a new machine they had, and, and I was uh, pastoring out in, in Iowa at the time, and uh, he wrote me a letter from Tucson, Arizona. My dad wrote me a letter. He took the time to write me a letter. Now, he slipped a check in there so I could buy a new suit, too. That didn't hurt anything either. But you know what? I still have that letter. It wasn't easy for my dad to write a letter. In fact, that may be the only letter he ever wrote in his life. I don't know. I assume maybe he wrote a couple of love notes to my, my mother someplace along the way. But uh, Peter takes the time here and, and write, puts this letter together. Because he wants to serve the Lord, and he cares about the people to whom he's writing this letter. Uh, he has concern for them, and he does something about that concern. Now, sometimes we talk about being concerned for people, but we don't do anything about it. We don't put any feet to it. Well, he puts some feet to it, and he writes the, this letter. And actually what he's doing is he's being obedient to what Jesus told him to do. If you recall, way back in... In John chapter 21, after Peter's been restored to fellowship and, and the disciples are gathered around the resurrected Lord, and, and Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds, well, Lord, you know that I love you. And then the, what, what does Jesus tell Peter to do? If you love me, Peter, what are you supposed to do? Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Feed the flock. You know what he's doing here? He's feeding the sheep. He's taking care of Jesus' lambs. He's doing exactly what the Lord had told him to do. Peter's life is no longer devoted to fish, but to the Lord and to other believers. We find also a mention here of another servant, uh, Silvanus. Well, well, who in the world is Silvanus? Well, he's one that, that's serving Peter and, and the, the readers of this letter and, and serving the Lord as well. Well, Silvanus, that's the Latin a uh, way that, that you would say Silas. And if you call Silas, way back in Acts 15, we find that he's, he's a prophet of God. He was a prophet. And he was also chosen to be the companion of Paul on the second missionary journey. When, when Paul and, and Barnabas couldn't uh, agree on whether John Mark should go with them, Mark had bailed out on the first missionary journey, and so... Uh, Paul didn't want to take him on the second one. And Barnabas is saying, hey, let's give him a second chance. And, and at any rate, it turns out they, they split. They go two different directions. And Barnabas takes John Mark, and we find that Silas is chosen to go and to be with Paul. So he travels with him faithfully on that, that second missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 16, when you find Paul... In that Philippian prison, having been beaten and bound in the stocks there, in the stockade, guess who's right there with him? There's Silas right there with him. And we find that he had a connection with the Apostle Paul, and we learn here he also had a connection with the Apostle Peter. And In fact, what's Peter say about him here? He says, he's my brother. He wasn't his biological brother, but he, he considered him like a brother. And isn't it neat? In the family of God, sometimes we can forge relationships with other believers that can even be cl as close or closer than our family ties with our biological family. You, you, you serve with somebody. You pray with somebody. You go on a missions trip with somebody. 
you work in a youth group together, you take care of a Awana group together, you serve together, you have somebody that prays with you and goes through hard times with you. And man, it's so neat to be able to form those kind of relationships. On one occasion, Peter asks about, talks about having left father and mother and so forth, and what would be the blessing of that. And he's told, you know, you'll get... You'll get way beyond that. In fact, you'll even have more. You'll have a bigger family because of leaving your family behind in order to serve me. So he calls him, first of all, his brother. What a great thing to be able to have that, those kind of relationships in the family of God. He also was Peter's secretary. Peter does the dictating, and the Holy Spirit's doing the working through Peter, and Silas is the one who's writing it down on papyri or papyrus or whatever writing surface he was using at that time. But he's, he's Peter's secretary. He's the one that writes it all down. And then he's the one that delivers the letter as well. He's the messenger that carries the letter. So we, we find that he's, he serves God and is used by the Lord. And you and I, we also have opportunities to serve each other and to serve with each other. In fact, that's what spiritual gifts are all about. Every single believer has at least one spiritual gift. And you don't have it for your own benefit and your own blessing. It's not to make you feel good about yourself. Not to cause you to be proud. But any spiritual gifts you have are so you can be a help and an encouragement to other people and glorify God. And other people have gifts that can be an encouragement and a help in your life. And, and God can be glorified through that. That's the whole purpose in spiritual gifts. Also, serving others is the greatest joy. You know who the most miserable people in this world are? People are looking for everybody to serve them. They think everybody should just be doing things for them. The, the, the most joyful people in this world are those that are, are looking to serve others, looking to make their life count for for other people. It's also the key to being obedient to God. What's God saying? That the greatest commandment is to love God with love our heart, our mind, our soul, everything within us. And then he says the second is like unto it. And what's that? Love your neighbor as yourself. And how do you love people? You love people by, by giving of yourself to them. You know, the, the agape love in the New Testament is a giving kind of love. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. As we love others, we, we give of ourselves to others and we, we bless others. That, that's extremely important. William Booth one time, founder of the uh, Salvation Army, was scheduled to, to come and speak at the, the national or international gathering of, of the, the Salvation Army. And for, for, I believe it was health reasons, he couldn't go. So they asked him, would, would you send a message? You know, you send your message and we'll read it to the, everybody that can be there. So William Booth sat down. He sent his message. You know what it was? It was a one-word message. Others. Others. That's all he wanted to draw their attention to. It was others. But what a great thing for you and me. Others. That we could have the privilege to an opportunity to serve others and, and serve with others. And when we serve with somebody, we're also serving them because we're a help and encouragement to them. It's not an accident that when Jesus sent out the disciples, He sent them two by two. 
It can be real help when you serve with somebody else and not have to be alone. We find also we can encourage each other in the grace of God uh, through reminders of the encouraging message of the truth. Peter has a, a purpose in writing this letter. And his purpose is to uh, give a message, deliver a message to the people that they needed to hear. And he does this by, by, first of all, exhorting, he says, and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. His letter is about, first of all, it says exhorting. And the, the term exhorting there is the same, we have, the same word we have used over in the, the Gospel of John where Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to send you another helper, another comforter, uh, a paraclete that's going to come along and, and he's going to, going to help you. And the same term that Peter uses here for exhorting, what he's saying is, I'm writing to help you. I want to help you. I want to be a help to you. These people are going to be going through and already are facing severe persecution and it's going to get worse. He says, I want to help you. And I want to testify to you. I want to tell you something. And, and what I want to give to you in the, the content of the message is I want to tell you that this is the true grace of God. What's the true grace of God? The fact that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The fact that we have God as our Heavenly Father. The fact that that's all as a result of God's grace. God deals with us according to grace. And even when we go through difficulties and hardships and things like that, that doesn't change the fact that we have a God of love and a God of grace who, who's watching over us and has done so much for us and makes us His very own. He also reminds these people, uh, gives them a reminder of their the condition that they experience of being chosen by God. He uh, addresses them in verse 13, says, She who is in Babylon elects together with you. Elect, chosen with you. This Tuesday we have our, our primary election where we go and you, you choose who the candidates are going to be in the, in the fall. This is something a whole lot better than being chosen by an electorate or the populace. This is talking about being chosen by God. We don't have time this morning, and I, I couldn't fully explain to you all that it means to be chosen by God. But I do know the Bible teaches it. It teaches that Christians are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And here, he, as he thinks about these people, the ones that he's with and the ones he's writing to, one of the things he reminds, us them, reminds them of is the fact you're elect. You're chosen by God. That's not something to be proud of. Man, that's sure something to be grateful for, isn't it? Isn't it a wonderful thing to be chosen? You know, even when, when people are picking up teams to play baseball or basketball or something like that, it's a neat thing to be chosen, isn't it? It's a tough thing if there's an odd number and you're the one that's left out. Huh? But to be chosen, selected, and to be chosen by God is a whole lot better than being chosen for any sports team that you can ever imagine. Chosen by God even going through the fires of affliction to remember that, that you're chosen by God, what a thrilling thing that that is. He also reminds them of the encouraging concern of others. He sends, them, he sends these people greetings. It says in verse 13, She who's in Babylon, elect together with you, reach you. And so does Mark, my son. Uh, he, he sends uh, greetings to them and mentions, first of all, the, the one who's elected. He's talking about the church. 
And Peter was not in literal Babylon at this time. But this is probably a code word that's used for Rome. A lot of similarities between the, the paganism of Rome and the paganism of ancient Babylon. In fact, you can almost trace a, a line from the, the false gods they worshipped in Babylon right down to the same ones they worshipped in, in Rome. A lot of similarities there. But, but he's telling them that this church greets you. And Mark greets you. And just to have somebody thinking about you is a, an encouraging thing. When somebody relays a greeting, that, that may seem like a small thing, but it, it lets us know that someone is thinking of us. You know, when, when Peter writes this, why would he write this? Uh, the, the church and Mark greet you. Well, the people in the church must have known something about the fact Peter's writing this letter to send to encourage believers in the, around the, the Mediterranean world they are going to be facing persecution. And Mark knew something of it. And Peter said, I'm going to write this letter and try to encourage these people. Folks in the church would say, hey, tell them, tell them you know, give them our greetings. Give them our love. Tell them that we're thinking about them. We're praying for them. And Mark does the same thing. And it can be encouraging just to know somebody else is thinking about you. Somebody else is, is caring about you. Sometimes people will, will uh, send greetings to me. Pastor Chris said that Ken Riley sent greetings to me from Lake Ann Camp and thanked us as a church for allowing them to go up there and be a part of the staff for Lake Ann. So, you know, it's nice to have the church's uh, efforts appreciated there, isn't it? So, you know, to let these guys go. We didn't get any work out of them around here at all last week. Didn't do a thing. But they were serving the Lord up there and doing something. And, and that's great. But it's nice that the church has sacrificed is appreciated there. And, and the greeting is the greeting is sent. Appreciate that. He also mentions here the uh, the matter of greet one another with the kiss of love. Well, what's he talking about here? Well, first of all, this is the uh, Middle Eastern culture. And in the Middle Eastern culture, people frequently greeted each other with a kiss on each cheek. Now, it was usually guys kissing guys and, and women kissing women on the cheek. And that's just the way they, they, they greeted each other. That that's still the case in, in some cultures today. When we went to rent to Romania a few years back, I got kissed on the cheek, I don't know how many times. And I think I got whisker burned for the first time in my life from one guy that, uh, that kissed me on the cheeks there. But, it, but it's just a way of showing affection and concern. And uh, that's not quite part of our American culture. In American culture, it's more like a a good hearty handshake or maybe a, a hug or a, a warm smile, a pat on the back, a slap on the shoulder, whatever. But, but a lot of times it involves physical contact. And you know, there's, there's, people have a hunger for physical contact. We've talked about this before. Now, that's a basic human need. And I'm not talking just sexually. I'm talking about just the need we have for, for contact. You know, babies like to be Babies like to be held. And we have that need for contact. And Jesus recognized that. When he, when he healed the lepers on several occasions, what did He do? And He touched them. Those lepers hadn't been touched in years. And He reached out and He touched those lepers. And He recognized the need that people have. It's interesting, in First John, when John's talking about Jesus, He said, Him who... Our eyes have seen and we gazed upon who our hands have handled. 
I think there was some hugging and some handshaking and some patting on the, the back and things like that that went on among Jesus and the, the disciples. There's a need for some physical contact, for touching. It's a good thing. Paul calls it the holy kiss. Greet each other with a holy kiss. So we're talking about pure contact here, but a contact that lets somebody know, hey, I, I see you. You know, and, and we even see them to the point where we'll pat them on the back, give them a kiss on the cheek, a hug, whatever. So there's a positive thing involved here. We uh, can also be examples to each other in the grace of God. Certainly in saving grace, as we think about what, what we talked about this last week, how, how wonderful that our God is a God of grace and how He pours out His his undeserved favor upon us and redeems us from our sin. What a thrilling thing to experience that, to be able to be forgiven for everything that we've ever done wrong because Christ paid the penalty for us on the cross at Calvary. We also find that we can be examples of, of restoring grace. In fact, you think about Peter and you think about Mark and these poor guys 2,000 years later and they've still got some major blunders in their life that have been written down and copied and, and recorded and preserved for 2,000 years. Is there anybody here that doesn't know about Peter's denying the Lord three times? I didn't think so. The night the Lord's ready to be crucified, he's on trial. Peter denies him three times after the Lord told him he was going to do it. And sometimes people tell you you're going to do something. You'll say, no, that's, there's no way that's going to happen. And we do everything to avoid it. Well, well, Peter had been told it was going to happen, and yet he's still unable to avoid it. He's got that recorded for him in Scripture. We still read about it. And Mark, what do you know about Mark? We already talked about it a little bit this morning. He goes off on the first missionary journey with Barnabas and with Paul, and he bails out partway through. And then it's a disagreement over whether John Mark should go on the second journey or not that calls Barnabas and Paul to split up and go their separate directions. A couple major blunders written down and recorded in Scripture for us about these two men. But you know what? We come to this point as we're reading 1 Peter 25 years later. And what do we find? We find these men have been restored. Restored to fellowship with the Lord. Restored to service. And what a great thing that is. I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful for these examples of restoring grace. You know the message we can get from Peter and Mark here? God can use imperfect people. Aren't you glad God uses imperfect people? Aren't you glad our God's the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance? Now, it's always better to not to sin than to sin and be forgiven and restored because there are consequences and complications that come along when we sin. But it's sure good to know that our God restores us. And He can, can bring us back into a place where we can be useful in serving Him, even as the case with, with these two men in, in this situation here. God can use imperfect people. He also gives strengthening grace to keep us from falling. Uh, we talked about Silas a minute ago. He was there in the prison cell with Paul in Acts chapter 16. And what's he doing right along with Paul? You know, they've been beaten. They're uncomfortable. 
They're in these stocks and in chains. And what are these guys doing? Singing praises to God. How could Silas do something like that? Well, the grace of God enabled him to do that. God working in him enabled him to do that. And now Mark, here he is, and he's considered by, by Peter here, it says in verse 13, like a son. Not his biological son, but certainly a spiritual son. Timothy was Paul's spiritual son, and Mark considered Peter's spiritual son here. And, and he's with Peter here. So this letter's being written. And in fact, there, there's such a connection between these men. We have the Gospel of Mark as our second Gospel in our New Testament. And uh, many Bible scholars believe very strongly that what you have in the Gospel of Mark is actually Peter's Gospel. Or the Gospel from Peter's perspective, with Mark serving as the one that wrote it. Just like Sylvanus is used to write this letter, Mark was used to write the Gospel. But, but Peter was used by God to give an awful lot of the information that was involved in that. Uh, it, it, it's great to be able to be a, an example. These men can be examples to us. And the fact of the matter is you and I are examples. But sometimes people, you'll hear somebody stand up and say, well, I don't want to be a role model. I don't want to be an example. i got news for you. You are a role model to somebody. You are an example to somebody. And the only choice you have is whether you're going to be a good example or a good role model or a bad example. All of us are examples to somebody. A lot of times we're examples to our to children, our own children, other children, sometimes to, to younger believers. We are examples. And what we need to do is strive to be the most encouraging example of God's grace and God's mercy and service to the Lord that we can possibly be. Finally, we see that we, uh, together we can enjoy the grace of God. And uh, when we respond to grace, we respond to God's grace with faith. And, you know, and, and we are responsible to do that. God wants to save us by His grace. But what are we told in Scripture? We are saved by grace, what? Through faith. God gives the grace. We've got to respond with faith, and God even enables us in this regard. But our responsibility is to, to believe, to trust God, to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, the wonderful result is peace. It's peace. Peace with God. First of all, we're no longer God's enemy. But we've got a peace with God. And we also have the peace of God where He enables us to go through all kinds of Situations that we may face in our life and still enjoy His peace. Uh, we find that, that Jesus said in John 14, verse 27, it says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. What kind of peace does the world give? The world gives peace when everything's going smoothly, everything's going well, everybody likes you, and you've got all this positive stuff going on in your life. Then you've got peace. What's the peace of Christ like? It's not like the peace that the world gives. It's the peace that we can have in any situation. He says, it's not like the world gives, do I give to you? And he says, it's peace that I give to you. And he says, on, on, on the basis of that, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. What a wonderful thing to have peace with God, to have the peace of God, 
And this is really a, a very fitting ending to the epistle. He starts out back in chapter 1, the second verse, and he's talking about grace and peace. He goes through the letter and he talks about the, the fiery trials that are coming our way, and we shouldn't think that's strange. And he, he, he goes into all of that and our need to submit and the possibility of having uh, unjust rulers and masters that are, are evil and wicked and, and talks about all the difficulties we can face in our lives as believers. And then he comes around, and what do you find him ending the letter with? Grace and peace. You and I can have peace. Peace isn't just about our outward circumstances. Peace is primarily within. It has to do with our relationship with God. And so he closes the letter that way. What a blessing of sharing in the grace of God together. And we have the blessing of serving one another and serving with one another. And I would encourage you, don't try to live the Christian life on your own. Number one, we need the Holy Spirit's empowering, don't we? And we also need one another to to help support each other and encourage each other and and sometimes to be accountable to. I was talking to somebody the other day and uh, they've been going to a large church and they were thinking about going to a, a small church. Just a few, and you know, not a whole lot of people there. I said, you know, that that's not all bad. You know, it'd be a good thing. In fact, you go to a you go to a church of a thousand people and you don't show up. Who notices? Yeah, there might be somebody, probably somebody from a small group you might be involved in. Whatever. You go to a church of forty or fifty people. You don't show up. What happens? Some you get a phone call. You know, what's the matter? Are you sick? Why? Because they bug you and and they want to get after you and make you feel guilty? Why? They care. They care. It is good to be cared about. It's good to have somebody that can can even help us to be accountable. To know if we we do mess up, we're going to let other people down. As well as the Lord and hurting our own lives as well. Don't try to live the Christian life on your own. You see, Satan's got a plan. Uh, we, we talked about him a few weeks ago, being a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. And, and in the, the physical realm, the animal realm, what kind of animals usually end up getting pulled down and devoured? Ones that are straggling off from the flock. They're easy pickings. You know the way we can make ourselves easy pickings for the devil? Isolate ourselves. Isolate ourselves, pull back, and just kind of go off on our own. If he can, if he can isolate us, it's a whole lot easier for him to discourage us, and destroy us, and devour us. Let me encourage you. Number one, stay close to the shepherd. And you know what happens if I stay close to the shepherd and I draw ever closer to him, and you draw ever closer to the shepherd. What happens? We draw closer to each other. In a marriage relationship, you got a husband that's drawn really close to the Lord and a wife that's drawn really close to the Lord. What happens? They draw closer to one another. Of course, the converse of that's true as well. You start drifting away from the Lord. She starts drifting away from the Lord. What happens? Drift away from each other. By the way, the, the Lord needs to be the one who's the core of our relationship, whether it's in a 
a marriage relationship or whether it's in our relationship with, with one another as believers, well, what a great thing it is to have Christ in our lives giving each of us this glorious peace. I, I read a deathbed testimony a while back. The fellow says, writes as follows. Because when I came to the Lord 58 years ago, He took away the burden of my sin and gave me peace. Since that day, I've known poverty, grief, and suffering. My wife and three of my children have preceded me in death. But through it all, my Savior never left me. Now as I depart this earth, I have the same peace in my heart He gave me more than half a century ago. Now we can have that kind of peace. One of the things that helps is being able to, to serve together, draw together with one another in Christ. Now, Christ has to be at the root of the relationship. He has to be at the core of it. But then what a great thing to be able to be part of the family of God. God's family. We get to be part of it. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for your matchless grace. Thank you for putting us in a family. Thank you for biological families and what they mean to us, Lord. Thank you for the family of God. I thank you for each of these dear folks, Lord, and for what they mean to me. Lord, I pray we might grow even closer in our relationship with one another, be an encouragement to each other as we, we serve each other, as we serve with each other. Father, we pray if there's anybody here today that, that's not in the family of God because they've never taken Christ as Savior. I pray they might even see their need of a Savior this morning and put their trust in Jesus today as they repent of their sin. Father, help us to appreciate you, appreciate our glorious shepherd. Lord, also help us to appreciate each other, recognize how much we need each other, and also, Lord, recognize how much other people need us to be an encouragement to them and the family of God as well. We give you the praise for this in Jesus' name. As we